consider a transporter device that can create a perfect copy of you down to your molecular level. Would you consent to the original copy of you being vaporized in the process? This is a difficult thought experiment. The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. On this episode, I want to delve into the topic of consciousness and why it is seen as a problem by some philosophers. I'm going to do a series again. Uh, I briefly touched on this on my series on artificial intelligence, but it also touches on the topic of science and religion. Consciousness is an issue that's dealt with in science fiction uh, rather extensively. Star Trek, especially uh, The Next Generation, has several episodes that bear directly on the issue of what it means to be sentient and what it means to be human and uh, the morals of these situations with the character uh, Data striving throughout the show to be more human and to experience emotions and getting him treated as an object by Starfleet Command rather than a sentient being. And uh, mainly, I, I think, due to human chauvinism. This, uh, this topic is also explored by a podcast contributor and artificial intelligence researcher, Dr. David Kelly, in his mediated artificial superintelligence uplift. One's opinion to the answers of the questions that are going to be raised in this has significant impacts on what one expects from the field of artificial intelligence and how one might treat and interact with a potentially sentient AI system and, and whether one even believes that is possible. The investigation of this topic is important because it begs the question of what moral footing underlies our approach to other beings. And this even includes non-human species in some cases. It bears on the topic of free will it could influence one's approach to crime and punishment. As always, if you enjoy the content you hear on this podcast, please hit like on your podcast app and share it with your friends. Uh, send me a comment. Uh, come online and register at my website, uh, www.therationalview.ca. I'm hoping to uh, release transcripts soon to the uh, registered users. So, consciousness. The root of this problem is understanding how mind or consciousness exists and, and even what is mind? What is consciousness? And the controversy part, the controversial part is do we have need to resort to the supernatural uh, and posit the existence of a soul, which is um, brought up by theolog theologians as, a, as an answer to where does mind or, or being or selfness come from? Or is mind merely the result of an as-yet-to-be-understood physical phenomenon? If mind is just a physical phenomenon, 
in our bodies, in, in the molecules and cells of our bodies, then it is likely that it can be simulated in a sufficiently powerful computer. We understand the laws of physics and we can simulate them on a computer. And thus, an artificial mind should be expected to be possible. Now, this is the crux of the issue. Detractors from this idea use uh, kind of a reductio ads ad absurdum to poo-poo it. Uh, they use the model of comparing computations in a, in a computer or even in our brains to shifting boxes around in a warehouse. All of the bits in a computer could be represented by some, uh, some set of boxes in an immense warehouse. And any operation could consist of moving the box up or moving the box down. All of the bits in a computer and all of the processes in a computer could be represented in this way if you had enough patience. It seems silly to think that this set of boxes could become a sentient mind with subjective experiences like, like we seem to have. And yet, our understanding of the universe, is, of, of the universe and all the forces and particles in it tell us that humans are just a jumble of atoms that form molecules. And these molecules group together to form proteins and cells. Is it silly to think that all of the different organizations of these deterministic things, the set of fundamental part particles, could itself become self-aware? Which is more silly? There's no difference in kind between these two interpretations. And... Depending on one's position on this topic, you can get completely different interpretations of some of some very insightful thought experiments. Uh, and again, going back to Star Trek, consider a transporter device that can create a perfect copy of you down to your molecular level. So it scans you, it's got the information, and it generates a perfect copy of you. You could use this transporter to travel to distant places at the speed of light would you really arrive there? Would you consent to the original copy of you being vaporized in the process? This is a difficult thought experiment. Computationalists, people that, you know, physicalists believe that um, we just consist of our atoms and we, if you have a copy, it's you. That copy thinks it's you. It has all your memories. It has all your experiences believes it's you suddenly in a different place. They would expect the copy to be indistinguishable. People who believe in souls or have some other mystical beliefs about non-physicality would suggest that your soul would not be copied in this operation. There's some special intrinsic you-ness to the original, otherwise indistinguishable body that would not be transferred in this copying. Now, this isn't to say that uh, the vaporizing of the initial uh, copy can be done without some sort of moral questions. Both types of people believe that the vaporized copy would feel like it's you and would experience death. So you would certainly not want to draw it out. But the fact that the new copy is identical 
for a physicalist would mean that you would continue living as though you had been travel transferred instantaneously to your destination and vaporizing the initial copy would mean that you know the universe still has one of you and that's still you i had a long conversation on um on facebook uh with somebody over this exact um issue and they couldn't get around the idea that the copy would be a would not be me it would be a, a zombie or, or it, would, it would it would be an in, intruder it'd be a new person that's not me i'm me and and that copy wouldn't be me and we had a long discussion it was really fascinating actually just to see the different perspective on on such a such a, an interesting thought experiment now some would say that the computational view renders consciousness as a side effect of mostly deterministic physical processes and it really calls into question the concept of free will if everything the nervous system does is computation and thus computation does everything there wouldn't seem to be a need for consciousness or or, or decision making we don't have volition uh now this is is a is also a very good topic um i read a book called um blindsight which was um recommended to me by by a friend uh, by a canadian author peter watts and it's on it's available online i highly recommend reading it um basically posits that the consciousness is just an observer it it basically serves as a way to do after the fact justification of what your body is going to do anyway there are there actually is experimental evidence to support this view people have done very very uh, interesting experiments measuring the electrical impulses in your brain uh, and asking people to say you know move a finger of your own volition and and press a button the they put wires in the brain and measure the electrical impulses and they can actually tell before the person is aware of making their decision that the decision has already been made and is unstoppable that blows my mind and that blows a lot of people's minds um, whatever a mind is so what does that mean many physicists believe that all physical processes are the result of deterministic and uh, and some random quantum interactions of atomic and subatomic particles and fields. In this view, our sentient awareness is more a narrator than a director. It observes what the brain does and attempts to create a consistent narrative. Uh, and what what are, what else supports this? Well. You can electrically stimulate someone's brain when they're in surgery. And if you stimulate a certain area, it causes laughter. This has been demonstrated on conscious subjects. We know we, you poke that area of the brain with a, with a Tesla coil, <laughs> they're going to laugh. Okay, I, I, I exaggerate. Um, when questioned as to why they laughed, the subject will say that they thought of a funny joke. So the consciousness is actually explaining what the doing some sort of post hoc justification of what the body is doing and it's used to doing this the reality that we see is manufactured in our brain when asked to use free will and make an arbitrary choice you can predict it by measuring the brain's impulses before the person claims they're consciously aware of their choice 
This is a disturbing thought to many people. It suggests that we don't have free will, but only the illusion of free will. But that's not the whole story. Determinism, however, is not well understood by the general public and philosophers. Just because a process is deterministic doesn't mean it can be predicted. The mathematics of chaos theory show that without perfect knowledge of the initial state of any system, even though the system is deterministic, it can be impossible to predict a future state. And we know that we can't have that level of knowledge of a system from you know, quantum mechanics. There, you can't know precisely the individual state of any system due to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So what that means is that even though it's, a system is deterministic, it can be unpredictable. You cannot know the future. No one can know the future without perfect knowledge, and perfect knowledge is not available from the basic postulates of physics. So philosophically, what does this mean about free will? And it's a very interesting question. I don't know the answer, um, but I, I lay awake at night thinking about it sometimes. Um, should people be held responsible for their choices if they have no free control over them? The morality of this situation is, is at the root of crime and punishment. And I want to now give you a blurb from philosopher Bertrand Russell, who has discussed this situation at length. And I, I really like his um, insight into this, uh, into this situation. So this, this is quoting Bertrand Russell. The emotional importance supposed to belong to free will seems to me to rest mainly upon certain confusions of thought. People imagine that if the will has causes, they may be compelled to things that they do not wish to do. This, of course, is a mistake. The wish is the cause of action, even if the wish itself has causes. We cannot do what we would rather not do, but it seems unreasonable to complain about this limitation. It is unpleasant when our wishes are thwarted, but this, no, this is no more likely to happen if they are caused than if they are uncaused. Nor does determinism warrant the feeling that we are important. Power consists in being able to have intended effects. And this is neither increased nor diminished by the discovery of causes of our intentions. Believers in free will, always in another mental compartment, believe simultaneously that volitions have causes. They think, for example, that virtue can be inculcated by a good upbringing and that religious education is very useful to morals. They believe that sermons do good and that moral exhortation may be beneficial. Now, it is obvious that if virtuous volitions are uncaused, we cannot do anything whatever to promote them. To the extent to which a man believes that it is in his power or in any man's power to promote desirable behavior in others... To that extent, he believes in psychological causation and not in free will. In practice, the whole of our dealings with each other are based upon the assumption that men's actions result from antecedent circumstances. Political propaganda, the criminal law, the writing of books urging this or that line of action would all lose their raison d'etre if they had no effect upon what people do. The implication of the free will doctrine are not realized by those who hold it. We say, 
Why did you do it? And expect the answer to mention beliefs and desires which caused action. When a man does not himself know why he acted as he did, we may search his unconscious for a cause, but it never occurs to us that there may have been no cause. It is said that introspection makes us immediately aware of free will. In so far as this is taken in a sense which precludes causation, it is a mere mistake. What we know is that when we have made a choice, we could have chosen otherwise if we had wanted to do so. But we cannot know by mere introspection whether there were causes of our wanting to do what we did. In the case of actions which are very rational, we may know their causes. When we take legal or medical or financial advice and act upon it, we know that the advice is the cause of our action. But in general, the causes of acts are not to be discovered by introspection. They are to be discovered like those of other events by observing their antecedents and discovering some law of consequence. It should be said further that the notion of will is very obscure and is probably one which would di disappear from scientific psychology. Most of our actions are not preceded by anything that feels like an act of will. It is a form of mental disease to be unable to do simple things without a previous decision. We may, for instance, decide to walk to a certain place, and then, if we know the way, the putting of one foot before another until we arrive proceeds of itself. It is only the original decision that is felt to involve will. When we decide after deliberation, two or more possibilities have been in our mind, each more or less repulsive, in the end, one has proved the most attractive and has overpowered the others. When one tries to discover volition by introspection, one finds a sense of muscular tenseness and sometimes an emphatic sentence, I will do this. But I, for one, cannot find myself any specific kind of mental occurrence that I would call will. It would, of course, be absurd to deny the distinction between voluntary and involuntary acts. The beating of the heart is wholly involuntary. Breathing, yawning, sneezing, and so on are involuntary, but can, within limits, be controlled by voluntary action. Such bodily movements as walking and talking are wholly voluntary. The muscles concerned with voluntary actions are of a different kind from those that control such matters as the beating of the heart. Voluntary actions can be caused by mental antecedents. But there is no reason, or so at least it seems to me, to regard these mental antecedents as a peculiar class of occurrence such as volitions are supposed to be. So, I just it's a, a little bit long, but I wanted to give you that perspective on you know, determinism and free will, because free will is a difficult concept and a challenging concept and may not even exist or need to exist. So what do philosophers and theologians think is actually going on if they don't accept physicalism? If mind is not a computational process in a brain computer, then what is it? Well, some people, like uh, physicist Roger Penrose, suggest that mind arises out of the spooky superpositions that one could only simulate on a quantum computer. In his uh, theory, uh, to explore consciousness requires one to understand physics, and physics is based on quantum mechanics. Uh, and it's not uh, computational, it's more... Uh, this idea, at least, doesn't have a sim simple reductio ad absurdium of a set of boxes in a single warehouse. Rather, it would require a 
quantum mechanical superposition of an infinite number of warehouses to simulate. Is this better? Is it quantitatively different? Certainly a different scale. Another refinement is to suggest that the mind resides in the electromagnetic fields created by the neurons in the brain. If this idea is true, a straightforward computer AI shouldn't be able to simulate a mind. One needs the finely physically graded continuous field distribution supported by the brain's microdistribution of neuronal currents to compose a mind. It is not so easy to see, but it still seems to me that the process occurring in such a mind could be simulated in a computer of arbitrary power, as EM fields are still deterministic and falling from physical laws uh, created by Maxwell and are derived by Maxwell, not created by him, he is not the creator, although some might think so. Is there something magical about these fields that allows a mind to exist? Some philosophers argue that minds are the underlying intrinsic nature of fields. I don't know what this means, but this approach ties brains and neurons to minds with holistic experiences because a field is a holistic thing extending over all of space and, and extending through time. But it just doesn't offer a very good explanation of what is meant by fields being minds. The EM field of the brain is a unified whole that is generated in the brain and extends out into space Base and you can measure it with uh, measuring devices, the electromagnetic uh, attraction and repulsion of, of, the, of, the, of the field. The EM field is affected by all of the neuronal signaling that occurs in response to sensing and stimulation and, and thinking and currents generated in all of the neuronal circuitry. EM field strength naturally correlates with the concept of wholeness that we seem to associate with uh, our beings and our localized consciousnesses in single bodies. Um, we know that electrical stimulation of the brain can elicit experiences and sensations from memory and various oscillating electromagnetic field frequencies are correlated with states of consciousness for example you know awareness has a certain electromagnetic field frequency that you can measure with in electroencephalograms and rem sleep has another frequency and unconsciousness has another frequency we know that trained neural networks can uh, link diverse stimuli with stored memes or symbols from the evidence provided by computer science uh, research so, you know, there may be something to this theory, but it's not clearly enough enunciated to me as to what it means that fields are minds. And, and it seems like it might be something that is unnecessary to posit. And not, again, quantitatively different from the uh, reductio ad absurdum of a computational view in some, in some aspects. What is it about these fields that make a mind? An alternate view that we have a supernatural soul that provides us with a subjective experience exists apart from physics. 
Um, this approach suffers from the problem that the mind is clearly correlated with physical processes in the brain. How does a supernatural entity such as a soul become entwined with the neurons in a brain? Neurons fire electrical impulses based on the physics of electromagnetics. When we have thoughts, chemical drugs can change um, how the brain functions, change our subjective feelings and impressions. Brain damage also affects the mind. In addition, if there is such a thing as a physical, as a non-physical soul, how does it interact with these physical components of the brain? At some point, it needs to produce a force or a charge uh, to link itself to these physical mechanisms, at which point it becomes just another physical entity which interacts in the electromagnetic field that should be governed by the laws of physics. So it's no longer supernatural. Once it does something, it's natural. It's, it's observable. It's measurable. And so far in physics, we haven't found anything at the level of experiments that would suggest such a thing is necessary. This viewpoint posits, if you accept it, that the field of artificial intelligence will never create a sentient awareness and that we cannot simulate a mind through mere processing. Another interesting theory which I found in, in researching this uh, series of podcasts is called panpsychism. And this goes one step beyond the EM field theory. This posits that the most basic reality in the universe is thought. And every physical object in the universe is imbued with some level of awareness. It's just there. It's a, it's a thing that everything has, from rocks to brains and everything in between. And somehow the complexity of a brain magnifies this universal awareness. It's not clear to me where this is going. It seems again like an explanation of something that you, we haven't defined well enough. Is consciousness something that arrives from complex computations or only from complex computations performed by neurons and EM fields in a neural matrix? Emergence is a property that deserves some description. Consciousness, it's postulated, is an emergent phenomenon. It could be an emergent phenomenon is an unexpected aspect arising from a complex interplay of simpler systems. Examples of emergence include chaos theory, an unpredictability in a system that arises from very deterministic and simple uh, mechanics. Um, beings like ourselves, arise from a jumble of cells, um, jellyfish, coherent behaviors amongst ant colonies. All of these things are emergent phenomenon that would be difficult to explain from the actions of an individual component. Emergence is defined as the arising of novel and coherent structures, patterns, and properties during the process of self-organization in complex systems. Weak emergence, there, there are two types of, types of emergence, weak emergence and strong emergence. Weak emergence describes new properties arising in systems as a result of the interactions at an elemental level. However, the properties can be determined only by observing or simulating the system, and not by any process of reductionist analysis. 
As a consequence, the emerging properties are scale-dependent. They are only observable if the system is large enough to exhibit the phenomenon. Biology is not just applied chemistry. They are linked, but it seems like one could not in any practical sense predict the intricacies and complexities of biology just by knowing the laws of chemistry. Although, with a big enough simulation, you would be able to arrive at it. This is the computational viewpoint. So, some philosophers argue that there are emergent phenomenon that cannot be simulated from the physical interactions of their subunits. And this is called strong emergence. An idea that seems to go against the laws of physics as we understand them. It seems akin to argument from ignorance, like intelligent design or irreducible complexity in, in the anti-evolutionists. It isn't all hocus-pocus, however. In 2009, a group of researchers presented a class of infinite physical systems that exhibit non-computable macroscopic properties. More precisely, if one could compute certain macroscopic properties of these systems from the microscopic description of these systems, then one would be able to solve computational problems that are known to be undecidable in computer science. And this goes back to Godel's theorem of, of incompleteness. Physics does use the concept of infinities in a very practical sense. So maybe this does hold some water. It's an interesting uh mathematical and mathematical philosophical investigation. There are several uncomfortable infinities in our most basic physical theories of the universe, like the quantum ground state energy or, or Riemann normalization. So infinities do exist in physics and, and we deal with them as best we practically can, but they're very difficult. And if these things do exist, then mathematically it may be that new properties emerge that cannot be simulated. I don't really understand the implications of this yet. I, this is kind of a new one to me that I've discovered. And here's a quote from the, from the group that, that discovered this idea. Although macroscopic concepts are essential for understanding our world, much of fundamental physics has been devoted to the search for a theory of everything. A set of equations that perfectly describe the behavior of all fundamental particles. The view that this is the goal of science rests in part on the rationale that such a theory would allow us to derive the behavior of all macroscopic concepts, at least in principle. The evidence we have presented suggests that this view may be overly optimistic. A theory of everything is one of many components necessary for complete understanding of the universe, but is not necessarily the only one. The development of macroscopic laws from first principles may involve more than just systematic logic and could require conjectures suggested by experiments, simulations, or insight. So this is intriguing. I don't know. I don't understand it, but it sounds really cool. What is the real answer? I don't know. And I'm really excited to start looking into it. I'm going to interview some people who have been thinking about this for a long time and get their opinions and, and share them with you. So... Until next time, stay rational. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View.
Thanks for listening.